from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you for joining us on Auto Line this week. The discussion's all going to be about who is the best automotive executive in 2014. Quite a tumultuous year for the industry, and of course, we're looking at this on a global basis. I put together what I call a blue ribbon panel of experts to help me figure out who was the best automotive executive in 2014. And that panel comprises Edward Lapham, former editor of Automotive News, Dr. David Cole, the founder for the Center for Automotive Research and now the CEO of Auto Harvest, and Neil DeCoker, who started the original Equipment Supplier Association that really is the the group that really brings all automotive suppliers together, certainly in the U.S. market. And I want to thank all of you for joining us here on the set. It's our pleasure. Good to be here. I should explain, too, we have two other members of the Blue Ribbon panel who are not here for this discussion. Carl Ludvigsen, the noted author and historian based in London, as well as Marianne Keller, the very famous, well-known Wall Street analyst. They have weighed in on what we're going to be discussing here, even though they're not here with us today. But Neil, let's start this discussion. Why don't we start with Martin Winterkorn, CEO of Volkswagen, which is a company that has just been on quite the roll. When you sit back and look at VW, what comes to mind apropos of Martin Winterkorn? Just so many brands and the ability to manage a company that is that diverse in terms of its products uh, globally uh, and... uh, doing it successfully, yet when we look at uh, some of the companies that we had here in 2008 and 9 that had to go from eight brands to four and so forth and to in order to restructure themselves and be able to manage it. So it's really amazing that, that a company like VW can manage such a wide range of products. I, I would agree. I, you know, General Motors and Ford both had to get rid of a bunch of brands because it was diluting their effort. But Volkswagen has, I, I, I've lost count. It's either nine or 11. Now that's including motorcycles and heavy trucks and all that. Nonetheless, Dave, David, when you look at VW, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's doing an amazing job, amazingly good job. Great products. Uh, one of the things that is potentially the Achilles heel is the homeroom is Germany. And the cost structure, the uh, labor cost, uh, uh, the employment and and VW compared to most of the other auto companies are really highly vertically integrated and is that going to work uh, as we go out over the longer term I, I don't know it's it, it's a challenge but uh, you have to realize that 10 million annual sales is a terrific volume great products uh, it's going to be an interesting year to follow VW and beyond this year. You know, that's a great point. Uh, they, they are going to hit uh, or have hit 10 million units for 2014. Uh, and the other thing, the employment that you mentioned, I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. I want to say Volkswagen has 560,000 employees. It's more than General Motors, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler combined. That's right. And, and when you look at the cost structure, particularly in Europe with this very high level of employment, particularly as you go down into some of the traditional lower tiers of the supply base that are still a part of VW, I think it's going to be a challenge. Uh, And of course, we see this across Europe with all of the manufacturers, uh, capacity utilization issues, uh, high labor cost, uh, labor rules that are really extraordinarily restrictive. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over time, but they're doing a great job. Like other manufacturers, Volkswagen has, has developed a system for sharing its manufacturing technology around the globe. For example, the, the Shanghai plant and the Chattanooga plant communicate regularly because they're building the same, the same product. So there are some advantages when they, once they get outside of Germany for doing things. And, and they've been innovative and some would say radical 
with uh, the labor relations situation in Chattanooga. So yeah, there's a little, a little bit of Germany that can be sent uh, elsewhere in the globe. What I find interesting about Volkswagen, though, is it's so successful in so many places of the right. world, Europe, Latin America, Asia, not the United States. I mean, a- any thoughts there, Neil? What, what well, I, they crack I, the code? It's, uh, I've been to the Chattanooga facility, and the facility certainly is world class, but there's just a feeling of the product is uh, plain. It's, it's not as exciting compared to competitive products that they uh, compete with here in, in North America. And the average consumer looks at, how does it feel, how does it look? And, and the, the VW looks dated. And it needs, to be, uh, it needs to be changed dramatically, I think, in the next couple of model years. Yeah, in this co- competitive marketplace, it's, it's really uh, a wild oh. scene. Uh, and when you look today at the cars that everybody is producing, they're really very good. You know, you used to think 20 years ago there were substantial differences here and there. And they've had some quality issues here compared to some of the other folks in the business. So we'll see. It's a work in progress. Uh, I guess I would have to say this entire industry is a work in progress. It's not really at its final state and will continue to evolve. And it'll be interesting to see how VW does handle this as we go forward from here in this unbelievably competitive marketplace. Yeah, Yeah, I I think part of the problem is that uh, certainly in the U.S. market, very passenger car centric, whereas we know right now if you don't have a lot of crossovers and SUVs, uh, you're you're losing out. But any thoughts uh, apropos VW in the U.S.? Uh, everything that we've heard is absolutely true. Uh, they have a following. They need to find ways, I think, to, uh, to translate their traditional German engineering image and make it more contemporary. They've been doing some things with, with platforms for packages and things that could help with the efficiency of it and help them renew and refresh the products more quickly, which will certainly help. But look at, look at Audi, uh, you know, doing extremely well. And, you know, if you think of BMW, Audi, Mercedes, uh, that hits a different market segment than the mass segments. And uh, maybe a junior Audi in the VW isn't quite the fit yet. We'll That's see. a great point, Dave, because uh, Audi, which, of course, is part of the Volkswagen group, is doing terrifically well in the U.S. market. And so it's so strange to see one brand in the company doing so well here and the other not. And... Uh, that, that's one thing where I, I guess, you know, winter corn hasn't cracked the nut on the American market. And if Volkswagen, which has set a goal of being number one in the world by 2018, is going to achieve that, they have to do well in the U.S. There's no way they can achieve no their goal without doing that. Yeah. Well, let's move along. Uh, Akio Toyota, the, the scion of the family now running the company. Neil, what do you think? Terrific individual, great leader. Uh, he took the company from very difficult situations in the last three years with, with quality issues and so forth that came up and handled it exceedingly professionally and very well and very thoroughly, restructured the company with leadership around quality and uh, the focus and changed the, uh, where the vehicles are being designed and built to a regional uh, approach. Uh, all of these things have been done to, to, to set the company ready for continued growth, and they're number one in the world. It's phenomenal. Not only has he helped reshape that culture and, and in some ways take it back to the traditional values of the company, but he, he's, he's changed his own image as well from, 
from dilettante boy racer to a very serious executive who now has his arms around the company and what's going on and is, is in control, and everyone knows he's in control. I think that's a great point. Akio has changed, not just the company, he has. Akio yeah. has changed, but of all of the leaders we've seen from Toyota, he's probably the most Americanized. Uh, he was a part of the GM-Toyota joint venture on the West yeah, Coast. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. went to uh, uh, Babson College for his uh, MBA. And he's a very interesting blend of uh, the Japanese and American cultures. And I think that's one of his great strengths. Uh, it's been much easier for him to adapt to sort of the global system than many of the traditional Japanese managers. And that's, uh, that's a real credit to uh, Dakio. I, I knew many years ago Shoi Shiroto, his dad, uh, quite well. And we had a U.S.-Japan project for a number of years, and, and I was, was always interested in hearing what he was interested in or thinking about. And one of the things that uh, Shoishiro Toyota thought is that we as Japanese tend to think too much alike. There tended to be almost a convergence even across companies between uh, thought processes. And what you see in his son is somebody that has really broken out of that mold. What impresses me about Toyota, the company right now, under Akio's tutelage, to your point, Ed, you go back uh, just four years ago, and I know in senior levels within the company, that was the thinking. This guy's just a boy racer playboy. You know, we can't take him seriously. And then they had that horrific issue with alleged sudden unintended acceleration. Right. They had a whole bunch of other quality problems because Toyota had tried to grow too fast. And to your point, Ed, that was not their traditional values of how to progress as a company. Akio's got that totally turned around. You know, even though Volkswagen's been very public of we're going to be number one in quality and sales and revenue and profit, guess what? Toyota's number one. And when you compare revenue and profit, it's not even close. Or the I market mean, value of the company. I, yes. I mean, if, if you put the whole industry together and you don't get to what the market value is of, uh, of, of Toyota. But what he's really done, in, in my judgment, is uh, expanded the Toyota production system. What we saw with the unintended acceleration issues uh, was happened here, went back to Japan, got caught in the gears, and they didn't respond very quickly. Uh, that's changed. And I think this uh, keeping the discipline that's, but expanding the dimensions of the Toyota production system, I think, is one of the things we can attribute to uh, Akio. Is, is it, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, know, I was going to say, and also making sure that every new employee that they hire is inculcated in the Toyota way. You know, the, one of the concerns when they were going through that, that period of hyper growth was that they, they had a hard time hiring people and getting them to, to understand what they were doing in the process. And that's why they slipped away from, from the basis of it. Do you think it is going to hurt Toyota long term to have essentially two brands, Toyota and Lexus, versus the 9 or 11 or whatever it is that Volkswagen has? I don't think so. Uh, I no, I, I think it's uh, it's how you market it in individual markets. I think you have the upper scale and the lower scale brand, and and they have really command of the whole scale issue on a global basis. Uh, and you know, potentially at some point, if you need to uh, have a different brand in a given marketplace, derivative off of some existing brand, I think they can do that. I think they're becoming a much more of what I would call agile as well as lean company. Well, you know, what I find interesting is that 
Lexus has pretty much been an American phenomenon. Uh, I think they just launched in Japan the brand within the last year or so. It's still not much of a player in the European market or anywhere else for that matter. There's a lot more up for them to grow here. So as impressive as the company is right now, I, I think they've got a, a they're going to be a serious challenger to anybody who wants to go yeah, after them. They certainly them. have taken a major leap and be aggressive in their design. But they were boring vehicles in terms of looks. And, and Akio's the one who changed yeah, that. Yeah, it was just it's a major change. They have other offshoots, too. For example, a Prius is a, is a sub-brand onto itself. It means something else. Yeah, that's right. And you have Scion, which is still sort of... Mm -hmm flopping around trying to trying to get its proper nutrition yeah. but there are some other things they can do and they do have their their fingers into other auto companies as well where they can they, they, can they have really it. been the masters of managing scale well I mean I think that's at the heart and soul of the profitability of the company and why that market cap is uh, is so high we've talked about two gigantic companies the two biggest in the world right now Volkswagen and Toyota Let's go to the other end of the spectrum, and Ed, why don't we start with you? Another executive that we talked a lot about that impressed us, uh, impressed us is Ralph Spate at Jaguar Land Rover. He's had great success. Uh, he's operating uh, seemingly very well with the support of Tata. You know, they, you, you need somebody with deep pockets, and, and that's exactly what uh, uh, Jag Jaguar Land Rover needed. Now, I know people in this country who who are upset that, that the Jaguar brand is not carrying its own weight, yet it seems to get all the glory. They said that the that Land Rover is really the, the, the bread and butter. But that's changing with some of the new products and, and what they're doing. Uh, and, and I think that uh, Ralph understands that. He understands that his brands are jewels. Yeah. Other thoughts? Well, they make quite a transition if you think of what Jaguar was, then was as a part of Ford. Uh, which I think was a very important growing up experience uh, for Jaguar, really brought a level of discipline that they really needed in terms of quality and, and, and so forth, uh, some new thinking. Uh, and then being away from Ford, tied to Tata, they now are in a position where they can become much more innovative, I think, in, in, in their designs and execution. Uh, frankly, as a part of Ford, that, that could not have happened because all of the other things that were going on within the context of the Ford house. So this is a very good situation, and I think uh, he's somebody that is making a very serious difference, but it's still a small volume compared to some of the other folks in the game. Yeah. Small volume with a very large profit. They're uh, doing exceedingly well. And I, I agree with Dave that I don't think uh, JLR could have done the kind of things they're doing today under Ford's uh, leadership uh, because it was not the primary brand and so forth. But right. uh, under Tata's uh, financial support, uh, giving the team like Ralph uh, the uh, freedom that uh, they wanted and needed to, uh, to do what they felt they could do uh, with these products uh, is fantastic. Aluminum bodies, I mean, all the technology that they've got in there is uh, fantastic in these vehicles. Well, Tata really needed a brand Yep. like uh, JLR, um, or they were going to stay what they were. Now they've got a chance to become a major player in the world, although it's going to take a little time. It is. Uh, and, of course, there's, you know, no one's lost the irony that uh, India, home to Tata, you know, former part of the British Empire, now owns one of the crown jewels of the British motor industry, right. Jaguar Land Rover. Nonetheless, it, it's been good for them. 
Did Ford make a mistake getting rid of Jaguar Land Rover? At the time, no. Uh, Ford needed to contract uh, their business, and if you go back a few years, they had the vision of uh, Jaguar Land Rover Volvo as being sort of the upper scale brands. Uh, uh, Lincoln was somewhere in the middle, kind of like a Buick. Uh, and when things started to come apart, it's to Alan's credit and the leaders at Ford that uh, we've got to get down to what is the core of our business. And Jaguar Land Rover was not the core of their business, and they've done a fabulous job. And I, I don't think they should uh, ever regret the fact that it's moved away from them. But Neil, I think they're making two and a half billion dollars in profit right now yeah, on very low volume. For less I than mean, that, I, it's, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, it was a good deal. Yeah. It, it was yeah. a great deal. To, so that's, that, that's why I'm asking. You yeah. know, should is Ford kicking itself that looking at those little profits and saying, my man? Feel, yeah, my feelings would be that JLR would not be making those kind of profits if it was still a part of Ford. It just wouldn't have gotten the attention and the focus right. that, that it got under Tata. Yeah, but, you know, here, here it's very interesting. It, there's no question there's been this r amazing resurgence of JLR, product-wise, profit-wise. We're talking about Ralph Spate, the CEO, who has really tutored the company through this change. And nobody in the industry knows who this guy is. Well, we do. And we've got to especially thank our colleague in London, uh, Carl Ludvigsen, who kept pushing this guy yeah. as, you know, this is the executive of the year. But it's amazing to me when I ask others in the industry, so far this guy is invisible despite such a, a heroic turnaround at JLR. You know, there's an example of somebody in the past, uh, Ed Prince, that started the Prince Corporation. A supplier company. Yes. Yeah. Supplier company, great supplier, often the ideal supplier to people. We hate to do business with them because they're expensive, but we can't afford not to. And over the years, we asked him to, or some of his people to talk in Traverse City, and they, they said, well, they were very reluctant to. Because one of the things that they said is that we really want to be known only by our customers. And that's yeah. not a bad thing. And I think the idea that you want to sort of create this image of an individual rather than the image of the company is probably a very important thing. and it's an It is an important one, but it's astonishing to me that right. this guy's run under the radar of the automotive media. That's now, in, in England, it's over. Right. Yeah. Now, now the stories are yeah. starting to come out, but nonetheless, it's just been astonishing to me that such a successful business case has largely gone unrecognized. That's right. Well, that's over now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks to guys like you. Yeah, yeah right, right. Well, I, I, look, Carl Ludvigsen is the guy who made yeah. me aware of Ralph Spate. Let's talk about Sergio Marchione at, uh, at the Fiat Chrysler Group. Uh, Ed, why don't I start with you? You know, it's, it was just a little over five years ago that we went to the long presentation out in the tent in Auburn Hills and listened to uh, Marchion talk about his five-year vision, his five-year plan, what he was going to do. People thought he was nuts. You know, I, I, Chrysler was 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 falling apart at the seams, as was General Motors. But you know, if you look and you go back at all of the things he told us, then he has accomplished those. He's done them quickly. Uh, now, uh, you, you talk about opposites, and and he is very visible to the media and everybody else in the business. He has his image, he does his stuff. We know that he works all night on airplanes back and forth uh, between uh, Italy and, and Canada to see his mother and come here and do all that sort or of London stuff. London where their office is. London where their office is or downtown Detroit where the, you know, I mean, he, he, he gets around. But he also has his hands uh, on the business. For example, when Chrysler got 
the horrible, horrible report card on quality, the guy he put in charge of quality was gone like the next day. I mean, if you can't produce, you won't be there. And that's how he manages to achieve the goals that he sets for himself. Yeah. Well, he's very decisive. Uh, and he's very smart. I mean, he's incredibly smart. Uh, a few years ago, I spent a couple of hours with him in his office. And I was amazed at the grasp he had of some of the really basic fundamental issues uh, of the business. Uh, and I think we were all probably a part of that sort of coming out ceremony that you talk about yeah. with the new plan. And I still, I, I can't, I think I've still got Still have the forage binder. Yeah. The, well, the big binder, but then the invitation, and it said business attire was required. And then when we showed up, all of the men there, there were women there, but all the men there had coats and ties on like we do today, except for one person. And what you saw... And that one person is Sergio. Is Sergio. He's there in his rumpled sweater. And his objective was to bring the attention to him. And as a, one of his vice presidents told me a couple of years ago, if you would put Fiat and Chrysler in a room together and said, figure out how you're going to merge, it would not have happened. And what this vice president said, the strength of his personality was absolutely a requirement to bring these companies together. Yeah, it's not over with. It's a work in progress. I don't think it's uh, still uh, at a point where they need to be with global scale, presence, and volume. Uh, but he's been an extraordinarily uh, dynamic leader and sort of just the opposite of our prior uh, executive, somebody that's been extremely visible uh, and also very effective. You know, that, that's been really an amazing trick uh, you know, to see that. We talk about the five-year plan that he put out in 2009. He's exceeded every one of the targets that he set. And this year, uh, they gained a full percentage point in market share in the, in the U.S. market. That is just... I think it's a point and a half. Yeah, it's a phenomenal achievement. Well, he hasn't hit everything. You know, Alfa Romeo was supposed to be up and running, and a lot of dealers sunk a bunch of money into dealerships, uh, expecting that product to be here already. That hasn't happened. And there's a few programs that got pushed or moved, but... I agree with you guys overall. In fact, I went back and looked at that original five-year plan, that, that press conference that went on forever, all day long. I called it the Bataan Death March. It was incredible. But, you know, when I looked at some of the goals he set out, right. in 2009, he said by 2014, we're going to, for Chrysler, in the U.S. market only, we're going to sell 2 million units and hit 11% market share. And everybody went, whoa, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. yeah, it's a stretch goal. We understand you're, you know, no, they blew through those goals. Yeah. You know, they're selling over 2 million units. Instead of 11% market share, they have 12 and a half, a point and a half more than what he set out. And as you all know, this industry fights over every tenth oh, of a market share point. So to get a full point and a half above what your target was is massively big. And, of course, Jeep is playing such a big role in Huge that. Role. Nonetheless, yes. some of the big success in Jeep with the new Cherokee right now, that's off the Fiat platform. Mm-hmm. That's Fiat architecture. So it shows putting these two companies together has really worked. You know, one of the things that a lot of people are not aware of with respect to this industry, and I would apply this to the D3 in general, that is with the 0809 restructuring, all of a sudden there was a dramatic reduction in the number of people, dramatic reduction of capacity. And so what we have are companies, and certainly that's Chrysler Fiat, operating at over 90% of capacity in their operations. And that's where you really make money, is, is, is when you do that. 
And part of his goal in, in summarizing what I saw was the first thing is we've got to turn Chrysler as an entity around, improve the quality, upgrade the interiors, do things. And a lot of that came with this restructuring that occurred in the industry. They had a little bit more money to spend on the product. The second step, and that's in progress right now, is the integration really of the Fiat and Chrysler products, and that's going to continue over a long period of time. But I don't think their story is over. I, I think there is going to be somebody else, uh, not talking about Sergio now, but I think to have the true global presence and global scale that is really necessary to play the game uh, with some of the other folks like Toyota and Volkswagen, uh, there's something yet is going to happen. And I think that Sergio understands that, and I think we have to stay tuned. Well, he, he laid out a new five-year plan. He knows, he knows that things are changing, and they're going right. to have to continue to improve. But compare him to Carlos Ghosn with Renault-Nissan. We said a lot of good things about Carlos in the past decade, and, and he deserved it. But he didn't integrate those two companies uh, the way Sergio has in, integrated Fiat and uh, Chrysler. And that's going to make a big, big difference. It's making a big difference. I, I don't think he had quite the force to do it. In this case, uh, Chrysler was saved by Fiat. We can argue that maybe the Fiat side is being saved by Chrysler. By Chrysler Absolutely. Sure. But both of those organizations needed one another badly. Very, very different than going back to the Chrysler-Daimler uh, connection. Okay, I don't want to keep the audience in suspense any longer. We talked about Martin Winterkorn at the Volkswagen Group, Akio Toyota at Toyota, Ralph Spate at GLR, and Sergio Marchion at Fiat Chrysler Group. And just to let the audience know, including Marianne Keller, the, the Wall Street analyst, Carl Ludvigson, we pretty much came to the conclusion, Sergio Marchion is the executive of the year for 2014. Absolutely. Historic achievement for the company to be legally bind, bound together, headquarters uh, in London, listed on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, sales going through the roof. To Dave's point, the story's not over, yet. not over yet, but when you look back at 2014, even though all of them, the four that we talked about, did a terrific job, Absolutely. Sergio's the guy. So there you go. That is our choice for the AutoLine Executive of the Year for 2014. And I want to thank Neil DeCoker, Dr. David Cole, Edward Lapham, Marianne Keller, and Carl Ludvigsen for helping me get to the right choice in naming this Executive of the Year. I want to thank you all for having tuned in. <laughs>